The following podcast is sponsored by SuperheroStuff.com. Welcome, everyone, to this almost kind of not really special episode of H2O. My name is Jason Hunt. Joining me by phone, Mr. Timothy Harvey. Hello there. All of our episodes are special. Well, they are, but... (laughs) <laughs> this one this one is near special because it's 99 which is insane. Yes. And and we should be uh we should be getting you know what I we should get a poster of Barbara Feldon. That should be we should put uh, Barbara Feldon on our graphics this week. 99 <laughs> is our uh, is our number this week. And um and of course to celebrate our 99th episode the computers are all deciding that they're going to take a break so we are well they're resting up for the big 100 that's right yeah, yes which that's is, what it is which is next week and uh, and next week's plan uh assuming we do our 100th episode next week and the and the machines let us uh, you know they could take over before then um the plan is to do kind of a, a an Ask Us Anything episode, the hashtag H2O Podcast 100, or you can send us your questions. You can ask us anything. Uh, no guarantee we'll answer, but you can ask us anything. H2O at sci-fi for me.com is the email. This week, uh, we're, going to, we're going to backtrack a little bit. We're going to follow up on a story that has been developing... Uh, and really, there's kind of a couple of different aspects to this uh, that uh, we're going to get into tonight. A few weeks ago, we had a discussion about the lawsuit that Paramount and CBS had levied against the Axonar fan film production. And about right. that same time, we got news that a decision out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals was about to be uh, going to the Supreme Court. And it involves the question of whether or not cheerleader uniforms can be copyrighted. And some of you out there may be wondering, well, why in the world would you be talking about that? And how are they related? Well, because the implications of those cases and how they're decided could have a huge meteoric impact on both fan productions, fan fiction, fan films, fan art, and cosplay. And we talked rather extensively about the Axonar lawsuit a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, the response on that particular episode was was phenomenal. We really do appreciate everybody listening to that. Um, and and in the in the interim, uh, uh, Michael Hinman over at seventeen oh one News caught up with Alec Peters to ask him about the lawsuit. And Peters, of course, threw all of the fan films under the bus and pretty much slammed both Star Trek Continues and Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2. Well, they're obviously amateur productions. I mean, nobody's going to take that for a network TV show. Not like ours, he says. And yeah, very uh, very graceful that. Yeah, and the 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 gist of the interview was, 
we're a fan film. We're just a very highly paid, lots of money fan film, and everybody else is jealous, and CBS and Paramount are jealous uh, because we look so good, even though we're a fan film. Um, we're good enough to be mistaken for the real thing, even though we're not the real thing, and all of those other fan films are obviously not going to be mistaken for the real thing, and boo-hoo, we ought to be able to do this because it's just a fan film. And his argument is that the, the fact that CBS and Paramount are going after Axanar and not any of the others uh, shows that they're waiving their rights to protect copyright because they're not going after everybody that violates copyright. I'm not sure he's got a case. You know what? I'm, I kind of don't think he does. I think, um, we, and like we talked about, there's a, <clears throat> uh, the larger issue, I think, really seems to point to the fact that he was building a production company out of this. Um, yeah, and that hasn't and even that, really that hasn't even really been addressed in in any of the interviews or the discussions that I've seen, but that seems to be the crux of it. I mean, that would be my assumption. Of course, we all know what happens when you assume. So I'm not I'm I'm keeping an open mind here, but uh, well, yeah, that does it does seem to be that they the the Axonar people have taken things much further than any of the other guys. The Elvis what? impersonator and the voice actor who's a fan. I mean, these, these are things that, that Alec Peters said. And then, of course, he gets on Facebook and saying that he was taken out of context, he was misquoted and all of that because, because Michael Hinman has an axe to grind. And Hinman didn't even do the interview didn't even edit the interview. He is one of the editors at 1701 News, but he essentially recused himself from this because he'd written a, he'd written an opinion piece a few weeks ago saying Axonar's in the wrong. Here's why. And so he was only peripherally involved in this interview with Alec Peters. And 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 he posted a follow-up saying Here's everything that we did to set up the interview. Here's all the protections that were in place. Here's the understanding that everybody had. La, 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 la. Peter says we misquoted him. Here's all the quotes. And they've published uh, basically the core of the interview uh, in its raw form, uh, not the entire thing, you know, not the recording. But all of, right. the, all of the quotes that pulled out of there in, in context, essentially. And Peter says what he says. And some people are not taking a shine to that. I wouldn't either. Well, no. The, uh, you know, the, the whole thing is... Uh, I mean, you, you have a, a lot of different moving pieces here. I mean, you've got the... You've got uh, a perception of the studio versus the fans. You've got... Uh, you know, in, individual fans basically denigrating the the work of other fans, and you know, a fair amount of ego is in play here, obviously as well. Oh yeah. Um, and and even even if even if he is out of context, even if he is you know get, get completely completely giving everybody involved the benefit of the doubt. Um. 
you still run into the fact that the studio owns the material. And ultimately, they get to decide what happens with that material because right. they own it. It's theirs. Right. Star Trek does not belong. Well, Star Trek does belong to the fans, but... But not in any legal sense. Exactly. Yeah. And so really what we have is um, the unfortunate situation. And it isn't the first time, okay? This is not the first time this has ever happened in the history of fan productions. Uh, as a studio sits there and says, you can't do that. Right. Um, so... I mean, it's going to be very, very interesting how it continues to play out. I really do think it, I think it, in that particular case, it does come down to the fact that instead of just making a film, no matter how, what the length was, and I think you can make an argument that part of the problem was that you're essentially making a feature here. Um, yeah. And that, that's not something we see a lot of in the fan world, is people actually making, you know, full-length fan films. Right. Even though uh, it was going to be broken up into four parts, you're right, the length of it, it was going to essentially be, end up being something like three and a half, four hours long. Right. And and if you look at the the various, you know, the, the phase two, all the various uh, continuations of the original crew stories, no, you know, you're... No one is going to ever be able to say that this is clearly, you know, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, um, you know, continuing on the stories for a different company. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's fans who are playing those parts. There's, there's a lot of different layers to this that I think that you can definitely look at well, and, uh, and that's another thing that, that Peters brings up, is you've got something like Star, Star Trek Renegades, which has actors like Walter, Walter Koenig and Tim Russ playing their respective Star Trek roles in a fan film. So you have Chekhov being Chekhov. Well, and he did the same thing over on Phase 2. And you had George Takei playing Sulu on Phase 2. So you do essentially have some actors that are reprising their roles, their CBS copyright-owned roles in fan productions. But there's nothing that says they can't do that as fans when you're, right. when you're and, considering it as a fan production. Well, and, and again, you come back to the fact that these are clearly not... Um, I mean, they're clearly fan productions, no matter how glossy they look, no matter, no matter, I mean, and, and those, some of those sets are amazing. Some of those costumes are amazing. Oh, yeah. They yeah, are incredible. beautiful work. Um, and they should, they should, you know, we should always recognize the fact that these folks have done some really, really cool stuff. But no one is going to confuse them for being productions from Paramount or CBS or anything like that. I mean, they're, they are fan productions, and they're not trying to hide the fact they're fan productions. They're not trying to make something that, um, you know, it's, it's and, and, and it, I, the folks at Axonar weren't saying they were, you know, they were making very clear they were doing a fan production as well. 
But once you bring in the production company, once some of the money that you raise actually goes to start a business. Yeah. Once I think you that's, get into, that's where they cross the line. Yeah, I, I really, I, you know, I, that would be the trigger. And even if that's not part of what they're being told the reason is you can't do this, you know, that that's the target they painted on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would make them drop the hammer. And I don't really think that there's any actual obligation for any company to go after everyone in exactly the same way. Oh, no. Well, nor, uh, nor are they under any obligation to explain their reasoning for why they go after one and not the other. Uh, I mean, we could, we could go through all of this and everything could come out. I mean, at some point, if it goes to trial, then there would be a public record of what testimony is offered. And in that particular case, we may get some indication as to whether the, big, the, the building of Ares Studios has something to do with this. And I expect, I, I, I expect it does. I think that's at the core of all of this, when somebody sat there and went, okay, everybody out of the pool. <clears throat> But the, right. but the broader scope of this, the implications of this now are uh, you now have a very vigorous online discussion about copyright, about fan films. And in the wake of the Axonar lawsuit, just a couple of weeks after that, we have an X-Men animated fan film get a takedown notice. Uh, Danger Room Protocols was the name of this thing. It was from a guy named Joel Furtado, who worked on this for over a year on, and, and blew his savings on this, I should add. <clears throat> and at some point, he had to know that there was a possibility that Marvel would notice because Marvel has noticed before, Mar- like we like we've discussed, Chris Noderill got a got a takedown notice on one of his Deadpool fan films, right? But he he takes all of this time and money to make this thing, and it's based on the X Men animated series of the '90s in terms of the style and the artwork, and he's basically mm-hmm. saying, okay, well, I'm going to take. A couple of a couple of X Men characters and a villain, and throw them into a danger room simulation, and it's really cool because I really like the '90s X Men cartoon, so I'm just going to do a, a tribute. We got one episode out, and I got pulled from YouTube, so we put it on Vimeo. And I got pulled from Vimeo, and then he got a he got a knock on the door from Marvel, and they said. You got to take it down. It you you're you've got to take it down. And then he posts a video, and I haven't watched it all the way through. But then he basically says, "I've idolized Marvel, and I never I never intended for any of this to become this, and I never thought that they that they would become the enemy." I was like, "Wait a minute! No, 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 no. That's not how this plays out. They own it." You know, everybody else plays with those characters at their um, tolerance. You know, they are they are allowing you to play with those action figures uh, 
even if you don't have permission to play with those action figures. Because if you'd ask, they'd say no. Because they're legally obligated to say no. They can't tell right. you because, you know, that. <clears throat> and I don't think that it, uh, I, don't, I don't think that, that Peters and the Axonar group have much to stand, you know, much leg to stand on on this when, you know, with, well, it's a clear sign that they're waiving their rights to protect. No, they're not. They have a piece of paper that says they own it. They don't have to protect it. It's not trademark. It's not a service mark. That's a completely different thing. If you have a if you have a trademark, a registered trademark like Kleenex, for example, or Xerox, they have become so ubiquitous in the English language that they've become verbs and nouns and and syn you know synonymous with generic items. Kleenex for a while there was vigorously vigorously campaigning uh, I mean taking out ads in the trades and saying hey this is a registered trademark you can't just say get a Kleenex and it'd be okay same thing for rollerblade or you know Xerox being one of them Xerox actually lost theirs because people used it so much that it became it became a generic word. They lost their trademark because of how the general public used it, and that's that's a completely different thing from copyright. <clears throat> copyright is owned by the by the copyright owner, no matter what. Copyright doesn't become something that goes into play until it expires. There's an actual date on copyright. Uh, I think the current the current law right now says seventy five years past the death of the author. Where in this case, you know, you've got a corporate uh, a corporate entity owning the copyright. They can renew it in perpetuity forever. Same 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 as as Disney doing the copyright on Mickey Mouse. These things are gonna are gonna be in house no matter what, no matter who's in charge, no matter who's alive or dead, no matter who created it to begin with. The entity that owns it now is going to own it forever. Um, so, so the 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 idea here that CBS or Paramount is is under any obligation or Marvel for that matter have an obligation to protect their copyright. Well, they do to a point, but the understood foundation of that is they don't have to. Well, and there's 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 an argument to be made that you can that a lot of these fan productions serve to some degree as a form of advertising for the larger company that they are able to take advantage of. Um, but that's a fine line too, where you know, for example, if you are doing a say a Deadpool fan film and uh, there's a ongoing discussion about trying to get a Deadpool movie made. Yeah. And then you decide you're going to make a Deadpool movie. Uh, and it's your first rated R Marvel picture. And 
you know, there's all these different, there's so many different factors that can go into them going, you know what, we don't want a fan film out right now because we want to dominate the airwaves with our Deadpool. Well, and in the case of Notaral, my understanding was that, I mean, because there are other Deadpool fan films out there besides just his. <clears throat> my, my understanding was that his was so over the top with the hard R elements that it was even too much for Marvel to sit there and turn a blind eye to it. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. Well, um, even then, though, you're, you've got the you've got the fact that um, that can become a form of negative advertising. Yeah. Well, and even even Marvel had had scenes with uh, you know Ryan Reynolds and J.T. Miller. They're sitting there and going, "It went too far. That part got cut. You're never going to see it." In the official sure. movie, so there's obviously a line there, even for Deadpool. Right, and and when you look at the comics, no matter how uh, intentionally over the top and intentionally vulgar and intentionally offensive uh, the comics are, they all actually are very very carefully written to the point where they're only going so far. Yeah. And everybody knows where the line is. Right. And, and you can still, if that's the, if that's the playground you're going to be in, you, the, the, the creative team and the higher ups make those decisions on where those lines are. Yeah. And they get to enforce them. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. There are, there's always a line, and the, the problem for the fan film is that you don't know where it is. Uh, very rarely are someone going to come around and sit there and go, here's the line, don't cross it. Well, and it could very well be that the line is different for every, every fan film and for every different franchise. Well, and I would suspect that that's the case, but, you know, there, there isn't... You know, yeah, it would. The world would be a much uh, easier place to do this sort of thing. And if you know, you got the you know the the official Marvel guidelines of what you can do with a fan film, or the official Paramount guidelines of what you can do with a Star Trek film. Yeah. Um, but these things don't exist. There, there, there is no handbook that provides you. Yeah, the, clo with. the closest thing I could think of would be the rules to the fan film contest that Lucasfilm does. Sure. And even Lucas then, that's all... that's not going to be, here's what you can do with the film, it's going to be, here are the lines you can't cross. But they're not going to get right. into the story elements that you could use or can't use. Right, and I think it's, you know, it's, <laughs> there is, there is always going to be somebody wanting to tell stories out of these properties. And that's, in some respects, that's really, really cool that we are inspired by Star Trek and Star Wars and Batman and Marvel's properties and, and you know, Doctor Who and all these different things where, we you know, the fans love these characters and they love the stuff and, and they want to play in that, in that world. But there is, especially now, especially now with the internet, where information is instantaneous. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not—it's not like the days of the fanzine back in the '70s, 
uh, or the seventies or eighties, um, when, you know, these things might come out once a month and it was read by a very tiny audience and there was never any question that this was something written by a fan. We should, uh, we should do a fanzine. We should go back <laughs> well, to those days, right? You know, I, I, I loved the fanzines when I was, when I was a teenager because that's, you, and you got them at the conventions. Yeah. And you would pick up, you would pick up somebody's, you know, short story that they wrote or the novel that they wrote, um, and that's the only place you could find it, or the, um, you know, the, the the hypothetical script somebody had written for you know this Star Trek sequel or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot you know that so much of that stuff was fan created, but you only found it in the cons. And so if they were selling it, you know, the studios weren't even paying attention. The studios, you know, the, that they knew it wasn't going anywhere. It was, it was never going to be a conflict or competition or, you know. And, and to some degree, especially in those time periods, you were running into people not really caring outside of those communities. You didn't have the kind of reach that genre has now. Right. Um, you know, it was fans for fans, and it was outside the fan community. There was not really a whole lot of acknowledgement for it. You you didn't have the kind of reaction to a Star Trek movie that you got, you get from, you know, Suicide Squad or, or Captain America Civil War. You know, these are things, the scale is completely different. And the landscape is completely different. And so it does change it. And unfortunately, uh, because there is no set of guidelines that everyone has, this is not the last we're going to see of this. Well, and I would, I would even, even go so far as to say that even in the official productions, <clears throat> you don't always get the guidelines because you know we see we see what uh, Greg Berlanti and their team are doing with the CW shows. Oh yeah, and they have made it clear from the very beginning that DC and Warner Brothers will sit there and say, okay, this far, no farther, let's see what you can do with it. And they are constantly having to prove themselves in order to earn the next piece of the DC universe they get to play with. <clears throat> so like an unlocking then, achievements in a video game. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what it's like. And you know this, the, you know the news that that the Flash is going to cross over with with Supergirl. It's something right. that has been sitting there, you know, just lurking since they announced Supergirl. Uh, you know, even before the show went on the air, everybody was like, "Okay, well, when's it going to cross over with the rest of the shows?" And of course, they come out and they say, "You know, it's legal stuff." It's paperwork. It's it's a process. I was trying to explain it to James today as far as, you know, who owns what. Because you you have Berlanti Productions making all of these shows, but each show is its own production entity. Each show is its own right. project with its own budget. And right. for Grant Gustin to make an appearance on Arrow, Arrow has to pay Grant Gustin 
and Arrow has to pay DC Comics for the rights to, to Flash. Flash, if, if Stephen Amell comes over to Flash, he has to be paid as a guest star from the Flash budget, and Flash has to pay for the rights to the Arrow character in order to use it on that show. And it's fairly less complicated because both shows are on the CW network. They're on the same network. And then, then you get into Flash making an appearance on Supergirl. Well, not only do you have the Supergirl production having to pay Gustin and pay for the Flash rights, but now you also have cross-network legal paperwork chain that has to be taken care of as well. I'm really surprised that it took that it that it's happening as fast as it's happened mm -hmm. i was really i was really expecting that this wasn't going to be something until next season for supergirl but then i heard, then i heard the date <clears throat> and i had a little aha moment and this is something we can talk about on rogues gallery uh because the date the air date for the flash supergirl crossover is March 28th, which is two days after Batman 5 opens. Of course. Yeah, that's no accident. I was thinking, well, March, March, that's, that's not sweeps. <laughs> you know, I'm in, I'm in TV mode. Like, that's not sweeps. That's, oh, March 28th, yeah. <clears throat> but it's funny you mentioned because the, 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 the general audience, the general public noticing these things now uh, a little bit more, a little bit more easily than they used to. You talk about the fanzines and we had Starlog magazine and we had uh, Cinescape and all of these different, you know, Cinefantastique and, and Fangoria, all of these, all of these magazines that were, that were right there in the middle of everything and all of us, all of us had it. All of us knew them. All we read them, but the people outside of our circles did not. <clears throat> and now it's kind of flipped the other way, because the genre community at large is now looking at a very public, general lawsuit that could have ramifications within the genre. And this is the cheerleader copyright uniform, uh, or, or the cheerleader uniform copyright. I'll get it right in a minute. That question that's about to go to the Supreme Court. And we're going to get into that after this uh, break. We're going to let you hear from SuperheroStuff.com. Remember, they've got the Hero Box right now. I think they're running the Deadpool Hero Box uh, before the movie opens. And, uh, and lots of licensed merchandise that you can get over there. So SuperheroStuff.com, we get our stuff from there. Uh, we recommend that you do as well. And uh, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, three cheers for copyright. <laughs> Sci-fi for me. It's more like a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey whiny stuff. Where can you get the latest cool superhero and sci-fi merchandise? SuperheroStuff.com! From t-shirts to keychains to cookie jars and everything in between. Superhero Stuff has added more buyers to the staff, which means more stuff, which means more for you to choose from. And don't forget the Hero Box, the must-have superhero mystery box. A $70 value, just $49. Visit SuperheroStuff.com today and gear up with your favorites. SuperheroStuff.com! Where heroes shop. 
behind the scenes tidbits, production notes, casting, news, games, toys, reviews, interviews, we've got a little bit of everything. Plus, you can sound off with your thoughts and comments, and who knows, you might be in our next episode. Star Wars news, we call it Salacious Crumbs, and you can check out new episodes only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Whoa, where'd you get that shirt? Bought it at the convention last week. It's an atomic cotton design. Atomic cotton? Yep, they got t-shirt designs from sci-fi, horror, cult films. All the shirts were really unique and fun. I had to get one. I gotta wait for another convention, though. Nope. AtomicCotton.com. I ordered a shirt. Shipping was super fast. Atomic Cotton, where Erica and Zach combine their passion for art and film to create wearable art. All original, made with a love for the genre. Coming to a convention near you very soon. Or find them on the web at AtomicCotton.com. Atomic Cotton. Shirts and art for fans by fans. This is meteorologist Brian Busby. If you're traveling to a convention, be sure to check the weather. We have the latest forecast on the conventions page every week at SciFiForMe.com. Back on H2O, Jason Hunt here along with Timothy Harvey. Hello there. And the rest of the story <laughs> is... No relation. <laughs> copyright. Uh, we're talking about copyright, copyright infringement, copyright protection, the need to protect copyright. This this flows out of our earlier discussion about the Axonar lawsuit. And now we get where we talked about the, the Marvel takedown of the of the animated uh, danger room protocols. Now let's get into a, a case that could very well have impact on the cosplay excuse me on the cosplay community. May do that again. <coughs> and now let's get into a case that could very well have some impact on the cosplay community. And it is uh, a case going to the Supreme Court. Uh, it is coming out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. This is a story from September, October. Um, the, the Star Athletica LLC... <clears throat> Filed a filed a, for a, a, an appeal in a case where uh, Varsity Brands Incorporated won uh, a copyright protection case. Basically, Varsity Brands came in and said, "You Star Athletica, you cannot sell that particular cheerleader uniform because it looks exactly like ours. Because it looks it looks like ours." enough that people would think it's ours. You're copying our design. You can't do that because it's copyright. It went all the way to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Sixth Circuit said, yeah, well, no. And so now uh, Star Athletica has, has asked the Sixth Circuit for this. I mean, eventually it's going, it's now going to the Supreme Court. Basically, the idea here that has so many people concerned is that the fact that this involves clothing, clothing is generally considered to be a useful item, and useful item is an actual technical term in, 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 copyright, uh, in, in copyright village. It basically says it's a piece of clothing. You can't copyright it. It's, it's a useful thing that is its thing. A robe, a shoe. A shoe is a shoe is a shoe is a shoe. You can't copyright a shoe because the function of the shoe is the same no matter what the design is. And this question of what they call separability, uh, the, 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 
the process of separating the form from the function in order to protect the design. You know, we get that with patent law, uh, with some uh, service marks, you know, your logo can't look like my logo, that kind of thing. Right. But it's never really been in in the clothing realm. I mean, if you get something that is so distinctive a design, okay. But in the... Oh, sir, in, we've, there's, there have been things where, you know, somebody has, has designed a shoe that looks a very specific way. Yeah. Okay, for, you know, for uh, Converse, right? Yeah. I'm 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 wearing I'm wearing a, I'm wearing some high tops right now, but you know what? Um, uh, various other companies have put out shoes that look identical to uh, the standard Converse high top model, and without the Converse logo, of course, because that would be the obvious giveaway, <laughs> and and very much immediately legally actionable, uh, but. Uh, you also notice that a lot of that stuff has gone away because Converse's lawyers have contacted those folks and said, <clears throat> you know what that looks exactly like? Yeah. And, he, and most of the time what ends up, that's as far as you have to go. Uh, you know, you, you know, because you've got the legal department threatening you and you're like, okay, fine, 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 fine. Right. Yeah, you get a you get a cease and desist order, and that's it. Right, and then you you make some tweaks to your design so it looks just enough that's not the same, and then you put it out, and you know you you've spent a little bit of money to retool your assembly line or whatever. Right, and then you uh, can market it as a brand new look. Exactly. Right. So, um, but the law itself, when it comes to garments, when it comes to clothing design, when it comes to it has not been clear for a very long time. Yeah. And so this becomes a good thing in some respects because it's going to help make that clearer because again we talk we you know in the first half you know we talk about guidelines. You know what are the rules here? Um, but at the same time there are unintended repercussions because you know in all that we're talking about here with cheerleading uniforms uh, the fallout of this could hit the cosplay community because none of the people doing cosplay actually own the designs to the costumes they're wearing. Yeah. That's where it gets sticky. Very, very sticky. Um, well, because well, and and really, the you know, reading reading the the notes of the case here, uh, Varsity Brands Inc. versus Star Athletica LLC, in the Sixth Circuit, August nineteenth, twenty fifteen. Basically, uh, Varsity, uh, which manufactured and sold cheerleading uniforms, registered with the Copyright Office multiple graphic designs that appeared on cheerleading uniforms. So it's not the actual uniform itself; it's the design, it's the artwork. Varsity claimed that Star Athletica infringed their valid copyrights to the designs by selling cheerleading gear that copied those designs. In response, Star challenged the copyrightability of Varsity's cheerleading designs, arguing that the actual cheerleading uniforms constituted an uncopyrightable useful article, which is defined under the Copyright Act as an article having an intrinsic utilitarian function 
that is not merely to portray the appearance of the article or to convey information. And the designs on the uniform were inseparable from the utilitarian aspects of the uniform. So the question in, in, at the Sixth Circuit level was whether Varsity's designs could be identified separately from and are capable of existing independently of the utilitarian aspects of the uniform on which those designs rested. So they're sitting there saying, um, <clears throat> they're saying that the designs themselves couldn't exist without the uniform and the uniform is not something you can copyright, so therefore the designs can't be copyrighted because without without the uniform, you don't have the design. As is how I'm reading this here. Right, I and think. I think I think there's some. Uh, I would be really surprised just from from the way that this looks to me. And I am not a lawyer. Um, I have in fact played one in a film, but I am not a lawyer. <laughs> Um, Nor am and, I. But just looking at this, there's a couple of, of logic things that pop into my head when I think of, say, for an example, okay, if you are the Dallas Cowboys, and I'm using them, of course, because the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders are a very well-known group of cheerleaders, right? Yes. So they're, they're, then they have a distinctive cheerleading uniform. Yes. All sports team cheerleading squads have distinctive-looking uniforms. The, the style, the color, the design, all that stuff, they're all different because they want them to stand out. They want them to be a, a identifiable. Because in many ways, they're, they're a promotional marketing aspect of those organizations. Right. But there's also a fairly... If you basically were to take all of the cheerleading uniforms and strip all the color out of them and lie them all, you know, overlay them, and, and you're going to come down with a certain amount of similarities in the in the physical design of the uniforms because of what they need to do, right? They have to be they have to have uh, uh, ability for the for the the cheerleaders to move. Um, you know, cover the cover the the body uh, parts appropriately for you know network TV and the children in the audience. Um, and so, I mean, there's a certain amount of of form that follows out of function, right? Right. But at the same time, if Green Bay, totally at random there, um, uh, were to try and do a carbon copy of the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders uniforms, uh, Dallas would be very upset. Yes. Well, and in and, fact, the Dallas Cowboys Cheerleader uniform was the subject of a, co of a, of a lawsuit in 1979. And I'm not going to get into too much detail on this particular case because this is a family oriented show but it's Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders Inc versus Pussycat Cinema would they be the folks who created the uh, the film that would involve uh, uh, Debbie taking a trip yes Debbie yeah. uh -huh. yes yes when Debbie visited Dallas 
there was a uh, there was a scene in which she wore a uniform that was very close to uh, the design of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders uniforms and Dallas Cowboys cheerleader said hey wait a minute there you can't do that on television <clears throat> and so yeah that that's I mean the idea you're right their 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 uniform is such a distinct design I think they even have a trademark on the uniform well, I would think so, and, and, and it opens up a whole other, and maybe this is a, a, a corollary show we, we find ourselves looking at at some point. It could be a little dicey uh, because of how we like to cover things, but, you know, the adult cinema uh, world has a lot of parody films right. that fall right now, it seems, under the, the umbrella of Parody and fair use, right? Um, but yes. periodically, periodically, you know, the the safe for work trailers for these things will show up, and some of those costumes are amazingly accurate, mm -hmm. and amazingly accurate. And some, in some cases, um, I remember seeing a Wonder Woman costume yeah, for one of those it, films it, in yeah, a trailer. It was on IO Nine. Uh, and I it was a gorgeous. It was a gorgeous looking costume. Yeah, it made it made the 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 TV show costume that everyone sort of you know fell <laughs> apart apart. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, look well, and, really really amateur. Well, and it made it really made the 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 official productions. Uh, you know, not just not just the TV shows at the time, but you know all of the movie productions and everybody else were really the subject of some derision after that because they're sitting there saying, hey, look, the adult industry can get it right. Why can't you? And I, don't, right. I, I think there was probably a good six months there where that picture of, of that, that Wonder Woman outfit was floating around saying, see, it can be done right. Yeah, and, yeah. and the interesting thing, the, kind of the, you know, and, and it, it definitely raises the question of, of you know, aside from the from the marketing and sales possibilities of this, you know, a, a conversation that we never, no one ever seems to have is how many comic book fans are there in the porn industry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't and, know that that's a conversation uh, we want to have. <laughs> well, we probably don't, but it's, no. but it, but you know, just just like you know, we talk about this all the time. The people who are running who are running the studios, the mainstream studios now, are the fans. Yeah. And I would imagine that it's probably the same over there as well. Um, so it it becomes you look at something like that, and and that you, the 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 question we're looking at here, it, you know, it isn't just going to impact cosplayers. You know, it is going to it's going to impact things like that as well. Well, and the other um, thing too, I mean, if if you've got Let's say that yeah. The, let's say this case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and and according to well, this one article that I'm reading here, publicknowledge.org, um, their their position is that Star Athletica's case, Star Athletica is the one that says you can't copyright the cheerleader uniform, 
And according to this article, these the, uh, uh, Meredith Felak Rose over at publicknowledge.org, she says that that position is backed up by a lot of case law. That basically says that varsity is not going to win this one. Of course, you know, it gets to the Supreme Court. It could go anyway. We've seen how that works. But sure. the 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 idea here, if the Supreme Court decides that they're going to take the case, and if there somehow becomes a, a way of saying, yes, a design on, a, on an article of clothing can be copyrighted, well, and really, if you're talking about comic book characters, the comic book character design is copyrighted anyway because it's a print design. It's it's a piece of artwork. It's not a it's not a piece of clothing. The clothing is a manifestation of a a copyrighted design, a copyrighted image. So th then you're getting into derivative works. And that's a whole nother rabbit hole to follow in in copyright case law. Because that's that's the that's the crux of the of the Paramount CBS lawsuit against Axanar is you are so much like Star Trek, you're a derivative work of Star Trek and you can't do a Star Trek. Not like that. Right. And I well I think that I think that the the saving grace and what some of the more level-headed uh, responses to this, because there has certainly been a lot of, of you know, the, the range of responses to this. Mm -hmm. There's been the, the, the sky is falling responses, um, and all the way down to the, eh, whatever. Right. And, and the more level-headed folks, I think, are raising some very, very good points about the fact that it, a lot of this does come down to, are you profiting? off of the design. And the case that, that, that is potentially going to the Supreme Court is about money. Like it always is. It's about, it's about somebody selling something that is a, a identical or extremely close, mm. close enough to be confused with the original source material. Well, and that raises the question too then, I mean, if you're talking about cosplayers, Let's say that uh, Kara Nicole, also known as Arizona Power Girl, she wants to sell photos of her in costume as Power Girl. Well, technically, legally, that's copyright infringement. Because if I'm going to sell a photo, well, I've even taken pictures of cosplayers in costume. I haven't sold any of them. They're not, they're not, you know, distributed for anything other than, hey, we did this on a lark. I just, you know, taking the picture. But if I tried to sell that picture, that's an infringement of copyright. I mean, technically, well, it's, it's, technically, my publication of the photograph on Facebook or someplace else like that, technically, that could be considered a violation of copyright because I don't own the design of the Justice League. I don't own the design of the characters that I'm taking, you know, the cosplayers. I'm taking the picture, you know, I got Green Lantern, I got Hawk Girl. I don't own those characters. I don't own the rights to those characters. So taking a picture of those characters, that you start to get into that fuzzy gray, is this, what, what is this? 
you know, well, de- and it, it, and it extends to fan art as well. Oh yeah, how how much of deviant art would go away if the copyright owners suddenly decided, hmm, hey, yeah, about that picture you posted. Well, oh, because sure. well, and then and, and go to any convention and and go to the artist alleys. Oh yeah, yeah, all so, of I mean, that. Yeah, there's. Right. It's it's the scale of this. I mean, so like the, the sky is falling percentage of the response. You can you can see the concern level because of the, the, the ripple effects of all of this. So yeah. you, I can I can get I can get the fear. Um, on the other hand, we kind of come back to the same thing we come back to with Axonar and phase two and, and, and the differences between the different kinds of fan productions is scale and financial impact. Right. If you are selling a photo of yourself in, in, in a cosplay costume for five bucks, the amount of income you are generating off that is not going to be a financial risk to the studio that created that character you are not going to be impacting them in a financial way. And there's going to be that distinction between clearly you are not um, representing that studio. Yeah. You are not uh, a, you know, you are not in competition with that studio uh, because you know, it's the difference between, you know, uh, minor league and major league in baseball. You know, the minor league guys are not competing with the major league guys. Well, and the uh, other thing, too, a lot of cosplayers get hired by companies, whether it's, you know, an artist who wants a cosplayer in his booth um, to, you know, either as, a, as an art, you know, as, a, as a reference model or as somebody there who can help draw the attention and, and bring the people over to the table. You're basically... Uh, you, you know, there are marketing aspects of this that could have an impact as well. Because if I'm, let's say I'm an artist for DC Comics, and I'm a popular artist for DC Comics, and people want to get copies of my art for DC Comics. Well, say I've got a particularly good piece of artwork of uh, Wonder Woman. So in order to celebrate the fact that I've got this great Wonder Woman cover... I bring in a Wonder Woman cosplayer. Okay. Technically, all of that violates copyright. If DC Comics wanted to come in and say, no, you can't do that, they would be within their rights legally, as I understand it. Now, again, we put the disclaimer out there. Neither one of us are lawyers. Do not take any of this as being sound legal advice. But my layman's impression is that DC or Marvel or Image or IDW or anybody at any given time could could walk into any place and say, you can't do that. Right. And then the flip side of that, you've got this announcement from Mark Miller, just to complicate things even further. Miller is fully embracing and doing a cosplay contest. Did you see this? We posted this on sci com. Mark Miller has announced a competition wherein uh, he's looking for the best cosplayers of his characters in the Miller world. And the best one gets 500 bucks and a photo spread 
in the pages of uh, Jupiter's Legacy Volume 2, which he's writing. Frank Quitely is doing the artwork, and that's coming out in June. 24 runners-up will also have their photos featured in this book. So this is going to be an official publication from Image Comics. Mm-hmm. Including photographs of amateurs in violation of copyright technically you know with their with their uh, costumes and thing so does that then become officially sanctioned cosplay and now are we going to get into the possibility somewhere down the line we're going to have the official okay cosplay and the not okay cosplay. Are we going to get to a, cir- a, a set of circumstances where everybody's going to have to, well, are we going to have to register? <laughs> you know, the cosplay Wait registration act. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, where, is, is that where we're headed? Well, you know, Cause, well, cause I mean, I look did. at, look at star Wars cosplayers. Okay. Star Wars cosplay, the 501st, the rebel legion, in order to get officially recognized in those fan groups, you have to meet certain particular guidelines. Now, granted, this is not coming from the studio. This is coming from the fan groups. But there's precedent there. You know, if I want to be a stormtrooper and I want to have a TK number and I want to be part of the 501st, my costume has to be screen accurate. And you have to submit photos, and you have to have proof that your costume actually looks like it's supposed to, and then you get your TK number. Could we possibly then see cosplay go that direction where Marvel, DC, Image, Dynamite, whoever, sits there and says, okay... This has all gotten completely out of hand. We are going to have to do something. If you're a cosplayer, send us your photos of your cosplay. We'll sign off on it or we won't. If we sign off on it, you're fine, you're clear, you can you can cosplay as that character or whatever. Cuz then I suspect I suspect not. I suspect not and, as well. Because then you have the problem of body shaming. That comes into play. Because well, not only that, leaving it, I, don't, I don't even think you're going to get that far, although that certainly would be a very, very unfortunate place for any yeah. studio or publisher to go. I mean, it's a very slippery, you see how slippery the slope can get. Sure, but I think, I think what, what you're going to run into before you get to that point, and or you certainly should run into before you get to that point, and and shame on any studio that that doesn't jump to the to the to the logical conclusion long before they get to that point um, is enforcement. Oh yeah, because and and this is and this is where I really think the cosplayers don't have to worry, and the fan artists don't have to worry. You know, why the sky is not going to be falling is because the scale mm-hmm. of cosplay, the scale of fan art, 
the fact that so much of this actually is serving as advertising for the studios right. and the publishers. And, and, and a lot of it, positive advertising. Most of it is positive advertising. Um, it's, it's drawing attention to the property that's being published. I would expect that at some point, if if we got to that point where there has to be some kind of monitoring or registration or what whatever, I mean, if if there's any kind of effort at all put into place for copyright, it puts me in mind of what YouTube is doing. Uh, you remember on on Tuesday we're sitting and we're watching Agent Carter, and I got an email in the middle of watching Agent Carter. I got an email from YouTube that we got a copyright claim. We got dinged for something that we uploaded to our channel. Mm -hmm. It was a trailer for G.I. Joe Retaliation. Now, two things. One... That trailer got uploaded to our channel in January of 2013. <laughs> yeah. Number two, <clears throat> that trailer came from the publicity department at Paramount Pictures. They said, here is the link to download the trailer. Here's the password. Here's the text, the, the, the promotional text that has to go with it. Feel free to share. Well, at that point, in our existence, the only place where we could upload video was our YouTube channel. So we've right. got a few trailers there. But, uh, but the note said, basically, you don't have to do anything at this point. You've been, you've been dinged. There's a copyright claim, which basically says that anytime anybody plays this video, the copyright owner is going to get a piece of the ad revenue that normally would go, would go on this video. So if you're, if you're set up for ads, like we are, if anybody plays that and the ads run over it, then the copyright owner will get a piece. So then you get into some place like DeviantArt or Vimeo. I don't know if Vimeo has got something like this already in place. But it could very well be that, you know, based on keywords and descriptions or uh, titles, or any of that kind of thing, that maybe if you're selling a piece of your fan artwork and it pops up in a search, DC Comics can sit there and go, okay, hey, this is pretty good. We're going to ding it, and we're going to take a piece of the... We're going to take a piece of the action. You can still sell it. Don't worry about it. But we're going to get a piece of the money. Which, considering that they own the thing that you are selling, uh, is not an unreasonable uh, scenario. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff, uh, well, over on YouTube especially, a lot of that's automated. Which means sure, there's not, I, there's not, not a, a flesh and blood person actually having to sit and sift through all of this stuff. You set up a, a search engine algorithm that finds all of this. And files the files the copyright claims autom automatically. It doesn't actually get to a person, a live body, unless it gets into counterclaims and reviews and that kind of thing. So sure, you're not going to be able to do that for cosplay. <clears throat> no, not yet. But if I've if you've got 
the quote-unquote professional cosplayers like Kara Nicole or uh, Yaya Han or Eric Moran or uh, Jessica Negri or, you know, those, that level of cosplayer, who's to say they couldn't? Because they're very public cosplayers. They make money cosplaying, whether they're selling props selling you know selling their services in making costumes for other people making pieces of costumes armor helmets uh, boots you know stuff like that props hammers swords shields um, right but in those cases those professionals are also the kind of people who literally are walking advertisements for the source material right the 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 studios and the publishers are actually I would argue getting a benefit. From well, they, that. they are getting a benefit, but then, but you know, like you said, talking about Axanar, uh, you know, when when you talk about uh, the cheerleading case, follow the money. You have to look at you have to look at the fact that if somebody is making money off of this, and really not not necessarily how much, but in principle, the whole idea of making any kind of money doing something with somebody else's property, you know, at what point do they have to notice? And, and you're right. I don't think that the cosplayers have anything to worry about either. Uh, not only do, you know, not only from the standpoint of the enforceability, but the, but the marketing aspects of it as well. I mean, we're seeing the blowback on CBS now because of the Axnor lawsuit. Where fans are sitting there thinking that they have a right to fan productions, you know, however misguided that that notion is, there are there are clearly strong sentiments on either side of this thing. I don't know. I I think what we should do is an echo chamber group discussion, and let's pull in some fan film producers and some cosplayers and some copyright law experts and see where this goes. So it's, it'll, it'll be our own little crossover event. <laughs> <laughs> it starts here and continues on Echo Chamber. Bum, bum, bum. Gravitas. Can we get Grant Gustin? Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Can we? Can we? Can we? You never know. I. I mean, because well, I mean, there are there are some pretty prominent fan film people out there that I'm sure have opinions, especially on what uh, on what Alec Peters said. Um, oh sure. But uh, Vic Mignogna is going to be here in Kansas City for Planet Comic Con in May. Uh, James Cawley has not been uh, restrained. I mean, he has been restrained, but he has been uh, making comments on his Facebook pages over there uh, with concern to the Axonar comments. Um, uh, James and, and James Cawley doesn't doesn't beat around the bush sometimes with his opinions of things. So I, I would imagine that we could probably find some people to address this question from the various different angles uh, 
so yeah, let's let's uh, let's put a pin in this, and we'll see how it develops over there on uh, on the Axonar suit, and um, and continue this discussion over an echo chamber with people who may know a little bit more about it than we do, because um, you know. As we have readily admitted here a couple of times, we are not legal experts. Um, so you know, the the uh, the what is it with the well and the, the, I think the, the, I think an important important thing to to bear in mind that, that with all of these discussions is that we are talking a certain amount of this makes sense, and as anyone in the legal profession, and we have, we have some friends in the legal profession, will tell you. Um, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's Is it every true. now and again you sit there and go, but, but, yeah, but logical thought, it's like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Com- Common sense would seem to indicate that X. Well, yes, but the, right. do- the document says Y, so it's Y. And some of that, some of that just comes out of just some of the arcane, and good and goodness, some of it century-old arcane mm-hmm. um, uh, realities of of the legal system as it has evolved over time. And I mean, you know, it, all you have to do is look at some of the laws that are still on the books in in cities and towns across the country and go. Really? We're concerned about people walking camels down the street? Really? Are we sure? This is illegal? Surely? Not? Yeah. But, yeah, no, I didn't, no this, is, this is an ongoing thing. And, and, and I think that expanding it to some folks who can bring in some, some expertise would be, would be a very good idea. And, and, and let's, let's even broaden our scope even more than that. If, if any of our listeners of course. Have, have expertise, especially in copyright law, uh, copyright and trademark law, that would be uh, helpful. You can send us an email, h2o at sci-fi-for-me.com, and let us know that you'd like to participate in the, uh, in the discussion. And uh, we're going we're gonna to pursue that. We're going to try to uh, put a group together for a, a further in-depth analysis about both of these cases, both the Axonar lawsuit and the Star Athletica varsity uh, concern. And, uh, and and examine the implications of both of those on a future episode of the Echo Chamber. In the meantime, uh, we are getting ready for the Ask Us Anything edition of this show. Uh, our next episode, episode number 100. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how we would... I, I, it, it just boggles the mind. Uh, we have been doing this now a hundred times, over two years, and uh, have rarely missed a week since number 15. And, uh, and yeah, so we're going to be doing an Ask Us Anything edition, the hashtag H2O Podcast 100, or you can email us a question. You can ask us any kind of question that you want to ask. Uh, we reserve the right not to answer, but you can ask us the questions. And uh, you can leave that in a comment if you want, or uh, like I said, send us an email, um, and and we will stack the questions to, for uh, for next week's episode, and we may even do video on this one, just to have for posterity, and we might even get a little daring and do live video, maybe, not sure yet. We'll let you know. 
Uh, okay, so that's going to... Bold gonna... move, sir. <laughs> you know what happened the last time we did that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube. So, so we're gonna do we're gonna debate the technical aspects of this. But yes, episode one hundred next week, and uh, that's gonna do it for us this week. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget you can uh, subscribe to our shows over on iTunes. Just look for Sci-Fi from Your Radio. There are a number of podcasts there for you to enjoy and uh, share with others. And uh, you can find all of our headlines on SciFiForMe.com, and of course our social media: Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Google Plus, YouTube, and Tumblr. And uh, and don't forget to visit our sponsor, SuperheroStuff.com. Timothy Harvey, thank you for Always a pleasure, jumping sir. in there. And Always a pleasure. My name is Jason Hunt. On behalf of all of us here at Sci-Fi for Me, thank you very much for uh, listening to this episode. We will be back with another H2O next week. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2016 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio.